Take your Bibles, turn to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Timothy 2, and we have spent the last couple weeks dissecting a section of 1 Peter that covers how our identity is fundamentally impacted by our union with Christ, so that we are now called a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. That's quite a trio. Uh, We then saw how our station in life has changed to sojourners and exiles because of our citizenship in heaven. Verses 13 through 17 is now a part of an application to this new station in life, this new identity in Christ. Uh, Because we are aliens, but still citizens... We are being called to do so with honor and thoughtfulness. We submit to a greater authority in Christ over any earthly authority. We are to be disentangled from the world's way of thinking, its philosophy, its worldviews, to set our affection, as it says in Colossians, set our affections on the things above. Okay. However, we've got we to take a look at that and say, that doesn't mean that we're indifferent to the world. And this is what Peter's talking to. We're not indifferent to the world, particularly in a way that dishonors and disrespects our leaders and promotes insubordination. Now, the only exception to that is when leaders or a law is asking you to do something is directly against a clear biblical injunction, or it's asking you to sin, okay? Then you can violate um, the law in order to obey God. One can see why, if you're a Christian in the first century, that this would have been an issue because the very government that you're called to submit to um, is persecuting you. So you can see why you might just set that aside and say, I'm going to do my own thing. So as we look at today's culture, okay, it's not too difficult to see how these things apply. There are growing animosities uh, between political sides from school board elections to presidential elections. And as a result, it seems honor is not the thing that's being given. There's a heightened sensitivity about issues the past couple years with race, vaccines, masks, guns, and uh, to the point that if one were to discuss that or get with even 100 feet of the topic, uh, you can feel the heat from the warfare on the front lines. You get too close and you're going to be incinerated by somebody from the other side, all right? The point is, does a Christian have any responsibility in that kind of a culture? And I think this passage speaks to that. Peter addresses how we're to respond. Now, before we dive into the passage, there are a couple thoughts that I want to talk about that kind of don't necessarily fit within the context of the passage we're going to be going through, but I, I, I think it's good to just kind of set our, our perspective on, on the right path. What was it that drove Daniel from the Old Testament 
to appeal to the king with respect when he was asked to be a part of basically an educational boot camp that was going to take him away from his Jewish roots, complete with a special diet, right? Instead of rebelling, instead of starting a a movement against the government, he sought to honor the king and was looking for an option to what Babylonian captivity was calling him to do. What is it that caused Peter and the apostles, when they were told to stop preaching, to keep from protesting, to keep from condemning the government leaders, to keep from denying their authority? They showed respect to the leaders while still staying true to the commandment of God. And that was preaching the gospel. And they had to suffer the consequences as a result. But even then, they were, they were submissive. They were honoring. Being a part of the kingdom of God means upholding God's primary objectives for our lives while also honoring authorities, right? And I think Peter's point in our text today says that by dishonoring the authorities and insubordination and disrespect, we are failing in our responsibilities as citizens of heaven. I mean, we have these parallel tracks that we're trying to travel on in this world. Daniel did it. The apostles did it. Um, In Daniel's case, he had this obligation to not defile himself according to the Jewish law, but he wanted also to honor the king. He had those parallel tracks. In Peter's case, he was called to preach the gospel, but he also wanted to honor the king. And I think he was able to accomplish both, at least in God's eye. Now, maybe the king didn't think so, but in God's eyes, he did. Even though the authorities had him jailed. But he never was a government revolutionary or or protester. Here's perhaps a, a way to say it. Our manner toward authority matters. Our manner toward authority matters. Now, I want you to know, of course, my opinion doesn't mean much, but I don't think the Word of God is saying that it's wrong to be a part of a political process at any level. Not saying that. I've got friends that are in politics. I'm thankful for that. Uh, I think they do a good job. It's commendable, particularly when it's with the right motives and you're, you're serving your community. But the issue is, Are we putting our faith in what the Bible says are carnal weapons, okay, or in the economy of the kingdom of God? Now, let's just define the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God describes the rule of God over his creationist king, including how that rule is exerted and structured and his ultimate purpose. And Jesus taught his disciples kind of how to relate to the kingdom of God, how to operate in the kingdom of God. And I would say there's one primary thing. Now, I, we, we can't cover it all. It's, it's not necessarily complicated, but it's, it's very involved. But at least, at least we can say this. Jesus said this. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy what? Kingdom come, thy will be done on as it is in heaven. 
somehow, some way, Lord, help us to get this will of heaven in the lives of your people on earth to live out. And let's not miss the obvious. What is he doing? He's praying, right? He's praying. I think the implication is this, and it's more than an implication. The kingdom of heaven is where people depend on the dynamite of prayer versus the firecrackers of human power, right? And including any political office. The power of God and prayer should always be our first option. Now, be honest. How many times have we said, or we've heard other people say, or they maybe even said it to us, you know, quit your praying and go to work. You know, do, do X, Y, or Z. Right? Hear that all the time. Well, how about this? How about pray first and then go to work? Make prayer the priority. That's saying don't work. That's saying don't serve. Make prayer the priority. Make sure you are asking God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray specifically for your leaders. Pray for the transformation of your, of your culture. Now listen, I'm going to press against the propensity toward human effort today. All right? So that's going to be kind of where I'm going. But remember, if you're operating as a good citizen of the kingdom of God, political involvement is not a problem. So don't hear me wrong, okay? But if you're not operating for the kingdom of God, I don't care if you're president of the United States, your impact will bear, nary be a 25-cent firecracker, right? Be subject for the Lord's sake. This is what our text says. To every human institution, where it be the, whether it be the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Before we open that up, let's all stand. Let's look at the whole context. I'll pick it up in verse 14. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Listen, the only reason why this is going to seem new to some people is because expository preaching is out of vogue. It's there, it's plain, all right? It's really not hard to figure out, but we rarely hear messages on this because we're usually just picking passages we want to pick instead of letting the Bible speak for itself and going through the Bible verse by verse. So this is nothing new, but Lord help us, it's needed, right? Let's pray. Father, give us understanding. Give us the power of your Holy Spirit to put these things into practice. Lord, I know I haven't practiced this perfectly. You've heard me complain and moan. But may I honor the emperor, the president. 
Perhaps we all need work. So we approach this with humility and ask that your spirit would speak to our hearts. Would you go before the Lord on your own and ask him to speak to your own heart right now? Father, you hear these prayers from your people. We entreat you to make us the kind of church body that is peaceable, humble, that makes a difference in its community. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. So we are to exhibit submission to our government authorities. We are to do it nationally, the emperor, and locally, the governor. We're to do so because of the instructions and examples of our Lord. Our passage says, for the Lord's sake. And in the next verse, it says, it's the will of God. Okay? So your argument isn't with me, it's really with the Lord in doing what this passage says. And I might say, this is Jesus' way. This is how Jesus responded to government authorities. For our application, we're to submit to federal, state, and local leaders and laws. Now, as Peter writes, one might get the impression that this is just a duty, but that would not be a good interpretation of the passage. It's actually, I think, a matter of the heart. It's an attitude that we're to adopt from the Lord. So we're not to submit kicking and screaming, but we're to be in an attitude of submission. Some factions of Christianity where insubordination and rebellion like a badge. The news channels really don't help us. The culture and its lack of civility does not help us with their partisan attacks. Churches have taken on a right-wing or a left-wing ideology complete with what I call red meat preaching of appeals to the congregation that take swipes at a opposing political leaders. With every human institution, including work, church, government, and later even in the home, we're to take a posture of submission. Paul also makes the point when he says this, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a tear to good conduct, but to bad. 
Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he's a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Let's just restate the obvious again. God has instituted authority. There is no clause in these injunctions of the kinds of government that we're to submit to. There is no clause in this injunction about how good the leaders are or what political party they are a part of. The leaders are responsible and the citizens are responsible before God for attitudes of submission with corresponding consequences. The submission includes to presidents, governors, mayors, policemen. Does this all mean there has never been abuse of power? Well, of course there has. But God doesn't want believers going around rebelling and protesting as if the earthly kingdom is all there is. In a section of the Old Testament, we read about the people of God under a wicked ruler named Nebuchadnezzar. They were in a land unfriendly to Jewish customs of their faith. Idol worship reigned supreme. The captivity of the Jewish people led them to being amalgamated into the Babylonian system. I want you to notice God never asked them to create their own political party to rage against the machine. God did not ask them to take part in a secret assassination plot to take out Nebuchadnezzar. I want you to hear what Jeremiah 29 starting with verse 4 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Live your life best you can. Build your home. Enjoy your family. Then seek good for the community that you're in. Pray for your community. Instead of being a constant critic, always letting people know of your political slant and your hatred for Nebuchadnezzar, be a positive contributor to the community. Serve often. Pray often. 
know, prayer has a way of developing a posture of the heart, of humility, and wanting the best for those in the community. I just love that picture from Jeremiah. What a great example. The point of this submission reminds me of Stephen and Peter and, and Paul. You know, when these men were captured, when they were arrested, do you ever read of them screaming, kicking, calling their captors names, saying, I'm going to sue the pants off of you? No. Paul made a respectful appeal to the authorities. He did do that. But in all three who were captured, they were submissive and they were honoring. There was a dying to self when they didn't get their way. I mean, when one's will is completely submitted to God, then submission to authorities follows. The word submission actually means to protect yourself under someone, to rank under someone. Now again, submission doesn't mean that we're obligated to follow every instruction, particularly when it's contrary to the word of God. The believer is to obey except in sin. But it's the Christian's responsibility to be submissive to all human authority. The motive for this attitude and behavior from believers, our text says, is of the Lord. So we're doing so out of obedience to God. So I'm basically bypassing the leader, and this is my ultimate allegiance to God, who's calling me to honor the leaders. This means when we don't agree with a human authority, we submit. You can appeal respectfully, but don't be the guy who always complains and always has an ax to grind. Again, it doesn't mean that you can't be involved in the political process. And we've seen, I suppose it's, it's possible even, you know, I think of MLK in reading a couple of his biographers, uh, biographies, they um, talk about his faith, talk about his peaceful encounter with people, that at least he was peaceful. I suppose it's possible in some cases but we just don't see a whole lot of examples of people being honoring and peaceful when they're protesting. But this was the example of Christ. His manner honored the Lord. Jesus had two authorities against him, Jewish and Roman authorities. They had him killed. The authorities were corrupt and unjust, but Jesus never attacked them or led a movement of civil disobedience. What he did is he spoke of the kingdom of God and he called people to repentance. Christ kept entrusting himself to the God who judges righteously. He knew God was sovereign and the whole world was in his control. So our submission to authority imitates the life of the Lord 
and it honors him. God will hold all leaders responsible for correcting evildoers and for praising those who do good. And under this context, we don't want to become known as people who cause disruption because then we will experience disruption from our authorities. I mean, when we stoop to methodology of power to gain control instead of trusting the Lord, when we respond, when we respond in anger, hostility, and rebellion, it's almost as if we are denying that we are citizens of heaven. Verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Certainly the implication here is that we're always going to get criticism, right? People hate God, they hate the followers of God. However, don't make it worse by being a part of storming protests and then cry about how the government is against you when they crack down on you. Peter addresses another reason for obedience to God in this matter. When unbelievers falsely accuse Christians of wrongdoing, yes, it's irrational. Yes, it springs from ignorance of those who think themselves wise when they're really being foolish. But Peter says we're to respond because it's for their own good, for the good of the community. We exhibit love and the power of God in demonstrating to people our lives have been transformed. We're not responding with anger or bitterness, but for the good of the community. In verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, we all know that the Apostle Paul, in the first half of his life, would be considered one of those foolish people, right? Jailed people because they were following Christ. Had some killed. And at a point before his conversion, he was a witness to the killing of Stephen. You might remember the story that Stephen was preaching before a Jewish audience, calling them to repentance. They didn't like it, and they had him killed. They stoned him to death. How did Stephen respond? He didn't yell and scream. He prayed for them. He prayed to his accusers and those killing that God, please forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. I mean, I, I can only trust that in that moment, if that were to happen to me, that God would give me that strength, right? I, I've seen how I've responded in the past. I'm like, Lord, help me. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. What's even more amazing, we read in Acts 7.58, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then we read, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, devout men 
buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And the next chapter, we read of Saul coming to face to face with Jesus, face to face with the claims of the gospel, and he confessed his sins to the Lord and becomes a Christian. Is it possible that this scene of Stephen made a lasting impression upon Paul? I think it's highly probable. The point is, it was this sweet attitude of Stephen that stands out. It's an example that we can all follow. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. We could say it this way, that submission and freedom are dance partners in the Christian life. Wrong kind of thinking will always go to an extreme. Some Christians fall into a contingency where they see submission as stifling. There certainly are abuses. But Christianity gave freedom even in the midst of the submission. And in the first century, when women were often treated as chattel, Christianity brought value being made in the image of God. Christianity brought value even to slaves. And it was that kind of faith that brought freedom to many of these slaves. On the other hand, there's those who say, now because I'm free in Christ, I'm not obligated to the laws of the land and I can do whatever I want, not submitting to human laws. I know some Christians who talk about how they don't pay taxes. They don't follow other laws they don't like. Again, this is not an option. Unless a human law directly violates a clear injunction of Scripture. Now, Christians have wonderful freedom. We have freedom from sin, freedom from guilt, freedom from trying to, you know, gain God's approval because we have Christ. But freedom is not an excuse to sin. We have a choice to serve God out of love. It's not a valid thing to say I'm a citizen of heaven, but I'm no longer obligated to the laws of the earth. It's the opposite. Because I'm a citizen of heaven, obey the laws of the land, demonstrate your trust and loyalty to God through that. Quit operating out of anger, out of criticism, out of bitterness against those over you. We're to trust God. You might remember the story of a man who was rebuked by Jesus because he took a sword and offed a man's ear. And Jesus said to him, listen, you can't do life by the sword because then you're going to have to experience the consequences by the sword and you have to bear those consequences by a government that has the right to show recompense to you. That man was Peter. And he's now writing, don't take the law into your own hands. Don't do evil in the name of God. There's a practical application of this 
by Paul in 1 Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that they may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Lead a peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified life. Instead of protesting, and criticizing, pray for your leaders. Maybe we could say it this way, that nothing exhibits your trust in God more than prayer. You know, I know that there's good-hearted people who feel that they're doing right in protesting, contesting the results of a political decision they don't like, but consider this. Do you want to be known for your political stance or your love of the gospel and allegiance to Christ? Because I guarantee you, when you go protesting, that's what people are going to know you for. The gospel, it takes a back seat. I almost titled this sermon, Trump in large letters, Biden in large letters, and then Jesus in small caps. Because that's the approach that many people have. Here's a insight that I now have that I know you're going to take this and run with it. No one ever came to Christ because of a political argument on Facebook. Isn't that insightful? No one ever changed their mind about anything because of the echo chamber on social media. Maybe it was about a year ago, I read a, an article that I thought was a good article. It was a pollster who took a poll amongst evangelical Christians and compared it with those in the general society and basically said racism in the evangelical church is not much different than in the culture. It wasn't good news, but it was what it was. Okay, thought it was well-written. You would have thought I shot somebody's mother. The things that were said within 24 hours, it was like a forest fire. One person accused me of being like a Nazi, using Nazi tactics. I showed an article that another Christian wrote. I took it off. I haven't been on Facebook much since then. I'm still healing from the wounds. My poor little self was wounded. I'm being sarcastic, but I realize not much gets done there. Quiet, godly, dignified, praying for them. This is to be our posture and manner. Again, this doesn't mean you're not a part of the political process. It means you do so with a 
humble heart, not with a bitter, angry agenda that cannot work with others. Now, what I'm about to say is, I guess it's going to come across as criticism. I don't mean it as that, but I mean it as instruction for us. But it's a lively example, and so I'm just, I'm just going to let the chips fall. I know of a case of a well-known church in the area that had a meeting to sign up supporters for a political party and a particular uh, candidates. Now, first of all, citizens, Christians, are free to do so. But I think for a church to do that lessens our effectiveness for the gospel. What am I to do if I'm a part of a church and I'm voting for a particular candidate and my church is leading a drive against his or her opponent? Not morally wrong, but I think it's unwise. And it's not making a priority of the gospel. Listen, I want to reach people who don't agree with me on everything. I want to reach people who don't look like me. I want to reach anyone who wants to come to Christ. Why would I put up barriers to that? Why would I do that and make a secondary issue now primary instead of the gospel? If Peter misses anything from verse 16, I think he covers it in verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. In a culture that had over 50 million slaves, honor everyone. That was revolutionary. Give value as image bearers of God to every human being. So how is it that conservative evangelical Christians hear that? Well, let me tell you what I think Peter means. Believers in Christ ought to be leading the way to honor all men because they deserve it as human beings. So here's the application. You may not like it, but here's the application. All Democrats, all Republicans, honor. All homosexuals and all trans people, honor. All atheists, show honor. All family members you can't stand, you do not have to write those down. Honor. Why is it that much in the Christian community we lead with anger, we lead with making people know, you know, how we disagree with them? Show them the respect due by the fact that they are people, image bearers of God. We do not have to agree with someone or approve of their behavior to show them honor. Homosexuality? 
I don't know why I'm pointing that one out, but it's one that conservative Christians always point out. And what I'm saying is, lead with love, not with dishonor. Listen, maybe on some level, if I'm not playing enough, quit the political and moral diatribes that show disdain for others. Now, many have sent me emails about what a political candidate says. This is not what I'm talking about. The disdain, the anger, the dishonor, that's a different bird. Peter's not calling us to be best friends with everyone, but we can honor everyone. Right? Lead with love. If you have your neighbor doing something that's morally objectionable, or you know that they're in some kind of lifestyle you don't like, don't slip Bible verses under their door. Letting them know how you feel, thinking that's somehow going to change them. But that's the way many operate. Quit it. Show honor. Lead with love. Pray for them. Lead a quiet and peaceable life. And when it comes to the church, the stakes are raised. Our text says, love the brotherhood. Love your sisters and brothers in Christ. Of course, we honor them, but we need to do more. We demonstrate genuine love. We give to one another. We share with one another. We, we grieve with one another. We go the extra mile to resolve conflicts and quit the gossip. We deal gently and show respect to all in the body, no matter what their political position. You know why? Because we're family. Because we're part of the brotherhood and sisterhood in Christ. Don't be petty and allow secondary issues ruin the unity that we have in the gospel. And then he says, if you're citizens of heaven, then also demonstrate a genuine fear of God. This means true respect and reverence. We're not terrorized by God. We are in awe of him. Perhaps one reason people don't respect one another is because they don't start with a genuine fear of God. God is the creator and the designer. People are in his image. How can we treat his creatures with such disrespect? Fear God. All the Christians in the first century, I think, who read this letter probably said, Peter, are you kidding me? Peter, do you have no clue who the emperor is? Nero? Are you aware that he's in power over us? Are you aware that he's persecuting Christians? To put it in today's speech, some might even ask, this doesn't apply to Trump or Biden. Fill in the blank of whoever you want to put there. Hmm. Notice he didn't say, do you agree with them? Notice he didn't say, you know, respect them because they're moral men. Mm -mm. 
We're not to honor them because they lead well. I got plenty of complaints. But it doesn't get me off the hook. He said, honor the emperor. Listen, Nero was the worst kind of leader you can imagine. Morally corrupt, insecure, mentally unstable, power hungry. Nero was responsible for the persecution of Christians. He killed family members, including a pregnant wife. He was known for satisfying fleshly pleasures in disgusting fashion. He would make the worst of our presidents appear as moral men. Honor the emperor. In the Greek, it says, keep your Facebook screed to yourself. And to apply it even more, don't roast the leaders to family members. If you do anything, recognize them as made in the image of God in the need of the gospel. Pray for them. Don't add to the cultural decline of civility. Peace, quiet, godly, dignified. Does that describe our political discussion? Does that describe how Christians are treating each other when they disagree. We're citizens of heaven first. Listen, I come to you as one who needs this passage as much as you do. I get upset with what I see. I don't like what I see. But that doesn't get me off the hook. I can at least honor them by saying, I sure wouldn't want his job, and I'm going to pray for him. He's a human being, and probably groping to find some answer. Lord, work in his heart. Bring him to you. Help his cabinet to recognize there's more order in this universe that you have designed. Those are the kind of prayers we can have. Those can bring honor. Let's pray.